Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. That was Fed Chair Jerome Powell. He's delivering his semi-annual monetary policy report to the Senate Banking Committee. And Matt, I think that the one takeaway I had here from some of his comments to date is that he's cautiously optimistic about the economic recovery and feels comfortable with where the Fed is in terms of rates and in terms of uh, continued bond buying. And in terms of how well they can control inflation as well. He doesn't think it's going to be the kind of problem that they won't be able to get their hands around. Um, the other interesting thing, I think, and from Jay Powell, I guess this is characteristic. Uh, he's staying out of President Biden's way. <laughs> he tried to avoid clashes with President yep. Trump as well. But um, the opposite wasn't true. Uh and maybe I guess I'd gotten used to the president making comments about the Fed chair, but I thought it was interesting today in John Farrow's interview with the new director of the Council of Economic Advisors, Brian Deese. Deese wouldn't answer Farrow's question as to whether Biden had met with Powell yet. He just wasn't going to give any ground. And, mm. you know, Farrow followed up like three times. <laughs> um, Deese wouldn't say. Uh, I don't know if that's because Biden hasn't met with Chair Powell and he feels like that would be an irresponsible message to send or whether um, this is just a new a, a new relationship between a president and a federal right. chair. And a big change, obviously, since the uh, last administration. All right, let's get a recap of what we did here this morning from Fed Chairman Chow. We're fortunate to be able to do that today, Matt. We've got Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, and Ben Emmons, Managing Director, Global Macro Strategy at Medley Investors. Uh, let's start with you, Carl, here. What did you take away from Fed Chairman's comments today? Any changes in the near to intermediate term, do you believe? Good morning, Paul. Uh, really, the, the story here is that no news is news in and of itself here because it shows the Fed that is unwavering in its policy stance uh, despite the ongoing rise in Treasury yields uh, and the uh, improving tone we've seen in the economic data. So the Fed is uh, very resolute in its commitment uh, to provide policy accommodation, and they're uh, showing no signs of uh, starting to uh, waver uh, as they're uh, being tested with, uh, you know, potential signs of an economy that uh, really is uh, surging forward with uh, pretty robust growth. The, the last point I want to make uh, uh, to, your, to your question is that uh, fast growth does not have to be inflationary. And so we can look back to the probably the best parallel episode, uh, and that was the hard stop recession of 1981-1982. At that time, uh, it was the Fed chair, Paul Volcker, slamming on the brakes of the economy and then releasing it. Uh, this time, that hard stop is not caused by the Fed. It's caused by lockdowns uh, related to coronavirus, and we can unlock the brake. The economy can surge forward, and if 1983, 84, 85 is uh, a decent precedent, and I think it may be, uh, we did not see a lot of inflation during that period. Be I, I want to ask Ben a question, but before I do... I got to say hello to Carl. It has been so long, man, <laughs> since I've it's been since like Bloomberg Rewind since I've seen you and uh it's great to hear your voice um and have you on the program. Ben, with that, uh Ben and I are old old friends uh now. Yes. We, we we speak on a daily basis. Um yeah. What Ben, the other thing that Fe, that the Fed chair said, which, you know, Carl says 
uh, fast growth doesn't have to mean inflation. Um, the chair said, look, uh, serious deficits don't have to meet mean inflation anymore. Do you think it's a concern at all that we're um, building up such a huge de debt to GDP level and that uh, he ha is sitting on such a gigantic balance sheet? Does that bother him? Should it? Hi, Matt. Uh, good to talk to you again. Uh, yeah, I, I think what he was saying is that you know, the link between inflation and deficits has weakened over the years. And, and he did say that it could change, right? But it, I think what he's saying, too, is that because of this 25 years of disinflationary pressure, therefore the link between deficits and inflation is low. And if you then take that to your question of the debt, though, and that matters to the economy, clearly I think he, too, probably understands that over time, large large debt and deficits will drag down the economy again, again, adding to more disinflationary pressure rather than inflationary pressure. I think that's just what he, I think, is trying to say with that, that question. And I think additionally to that, that the message seems to be overall the, the same today. He did yeah. respond to a question about the linkage between monetary policy and, and uh, asset valuation. So uh, I do think that he sees inflation in the asset markets, but not so much in the real economy. I just think, you know, I, I never got past Econ 101, so I'm probably the least qualified <laughs> here. But I have always understood that when countries um, build up huge debts, what they really like to do is massively devalue the currency so that they don't actually have to pay that. Isn't that, Carl, do you think that's um, always the plan? Well, Matt, I, I know that you're a rule breaker and you like to be the, the bad boy. Uh, so... <laughs> The, the rules are a little different for the U.S. economy. So in, in what we would call an nth country, an average-sized uh, economy or country, uh, you run into those problems where deficits uh, can be inflationary and uh, cause currency devaluation and whatnot. Uh, in the U.S. economy, that's a very unique role. It's the largest economy in the world. Uh, it's the, the most powerful military in the world, and it's also a reserved currency. And so that means that, in fact, looking back to the last recession, when we had the U.S. credit rating downgrade, uh, that actually proved a positive for Treasury yields. Uh, and uh, the currency actually appreciated because uh, there was a flight of capital into the U.S. So while we certainly can't just run willy-nilly indefinitely into higher deficits and whatnot, uh, what's happening at the moment is uh, the deficit spending is reducing slack in the economy uh, in the best way for the U.S. economy to be able to pay down those debts at some future date uh, is to get back to full employment and full capacity as quickly as possible. Uh, if it's a weak, uh, starved recovery like we saw after the 2009 uh, recession, uh, then uh, that, that puts the economy on much weaker footing uh, to make those debt payments. So get back to full employment. The tax revenue will come with it. Uh, and at that point, then you can start to uh, look at addressing these uh, fiscal imbalances. So, so, Ben, you know, we're hearing again from Chairman Powell, as Carl suggested, you know, no surprise, but uh, lower for longer. Is there a risk here that the market kind of moves past the Fed here? We've seen a little lift in rates. We've seen uh, some steepening in the yield curve. Does the market kind of move past where the Fed is and, and is comfortable. Yeah, it is somewhat happening, uh, Paul, because, you know, you look at those rate hike probabilities in Fed fund futures, right? They have moved up. And it does show that the market is pricing in the recovery aided by the vaccination rollout as at some point that the economy, one, is fully reopened and then is at closer to full capacity, right? Which means inflation will be indeed temporarily above target. 
And yeah, then it pulls forward, as we call it, the rate hike. And that's a function of the steeping of the yield curve and the rise in nominal and real interest rates. And so that could indeed be somewhat ahead of what, what ultimately the Fed will, will do. I will say, though, that so far it's been viewed as that they're not leaning against what the market is doing. And there was a question about that in the testimony earlier, right? how the link is between monetary policy and asset values. Yeah, there's a clear link, but there's also recognition that there's a lot of different elements going on at the same time in mm. terms of how the recovery is priced into the, into the financial markets, right? how we're getting out of the pandemic to a full open economy. Yeah, that does lead to a CPU curve and some expectation of future rates. Ben, I'm looking at uh, just 30 seconds here, but I'm looking at a couple of charts that you emailed me yesterday. Um, if the herd immunity and, you know, um, continues to rise, infections continue to drop, is the rate hike probability for, um, you know, December 2022 going to climb substantially? Yeah, that could be, Matt. It's, it's, it's definitely there. That That's a correlation that I think we should take note of, that the market is implying that it is really the stay-at-home trade, so to speak, as we'll talk about as being like, mm. deflated t- today, right? The rotations happening out of tech, stay-at-home, into reopening. And I think that's the link with, with, with that rate hike probability. The market is pricing in, that the economy is out of the pandemic, fully reopened. And that steep yield curve then reflects that. And that's where that rate hike probability rise comes from. So, yes, there's a clear link between the reopening trade and the rate hike probability. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to speak to you again. Ben Emmons there from Medley Global Advisors and Carl Riccadonna, our chief U.S. economist, wrapping up uh, the comments from Fed Chairman Powell. Of course, we'll continue to bring you headlines from that event, which is ongoing. Me and Greg, we know a lot about cars when it comes to (laughs) drivetrains and design, but When it comes to the business of producing them, if I have a question, I usually call up Ed Ludlow, a reporter out in San Francisco. He knows what he's talking about, and he got a killer story um, today. He got the interview with the Lucid CEO, one of the hottest properties, I got to say, on TV today. Ed, what did you learn? I actually learned quite a lot. You know, I've followed the company closely for about two years, and the thing is no one's really been interested in Lucid until all the SPAC rumors started, right, in recent weeks and months. But, you know, Lucid is a company that is run by this guy, Peter Rawlinson, formerly chief engineer on Tesla's Model S. And for the entirety of the time I've known him, which is about three years now, he has preached prudence and discipline and patience in bringing the car to market. And what we learned is the kind of main takeaway from the interview is that during the due diligence process with the Churchill Capital SPAC, Michael Klein SPAC, that it was actually the guys at the SPAC, Michael Klein and Alan Mulally, the, the former Ford CEO, who pushed Lucid to delay production because what they saw was a good product, you know, a luxury EV that has significant range, about 515 miles on a single charge. But they were worried that Lucid would experience the same quality control issues that Tesla went through. So that was kind of the biggest and most surprising takeaway from the interview today. It should be pointed out that Mullally is, I mean, he's the man when it comes to this stuff. He um, built the 777, notwithstanding the recent engine problems, which didn't have anything to do with Boeing. And he's the guy who turned around Ford. So when Bill Ford's company (laughs) was, you know, breathing its last breath, he called up Alan and he flew in and fixed it for him, right? So it's interesting because uh, 
broadly speaking, if you look at the SPACs that have done deals with EVs, what is the one thing that they have in common? They have a former automotive executive somewhere near the top. I'm thinking, of course, like, for example, Nikola um, and the SPAC that took them public. They had Steve Gursky, former GM executive. In my conversation with Lucid CEO Peter Rawlinson today, he basically said that what happened was he took Alan Mulally for a test drive in the car. And that it was like that conversation at the wheel in a pre-production prototype that kind of brought about this idea that they should take their time. Now, Peter Rawlinson is an experienced automotive executive in his own right. You know, prior to Tesla, he, he had jobs at Jaguar Land Rover and other automakers. But it's interesting that, that he, rather than sort of going with the new age technology EV approach, there's some deference, right, to the old automotive head about what the right course of action. And, and it kind of echoes this, how I've known Peter in the time that I've interviewed him over the last few years. It is patience and prudence. And when we started reporting on the SPAC, a lot, there was a lot of hype from retail investors, a lot of excitement from within Lucid and sources about the need to get a car to market quickly. Mm. It's astonishing how quickly that narrative has changed overnight. Yeah, and we're starting to see the uh, uh, the red headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal regarding the, the, this interview. And one of the interesting things that came out is that the, uh, um, you know, it's the delay was called, by, as you mentioned, by the Churchill uh, SPAC itself. But they're also getting some bridge financing from Saudi Arabia. Talk yes. to us about that. Yeah, so the, the transaction with Churchill won't close until sometime in the second quarter, right? And in the meantime, Lucid is hiring like crazy, and it's trying to get its production lines fired up. They need cash. So what I'm told is that that's going to simply come from Saudi's public investment fund, $600 million uh, bridge financing, however you want to put it. You know, what's really interesting in the run up to this deal, a lot of retail traders basically traded the SPAC on speculation. Hmm. But last night in the investor deck, we actually looked under the hood and saw what Lucid's plan is. And they're expecting negative free cash flow or, or cash burn of $10 billion dollars between now yep. and 2024. I a mean, year, you guys right? talk about Uber, right? A year. Not, not per year, but spread out over uh, that time. But, uh, but you guys you, you guys <laughs> cover Uber, right? You've talked yes. about how cash burn was such a significant story around them. When would they be profitable and stop kind of growing and, and think about profitability? Well, if there's one thing you learn on this beat, it's that prototypes are easy, production is hard, and it all takes cash. It all takes capital. And, you know, they will have to go to the public markets again. Um the capital markets sure. again. The Lucid CEO confirmed that during the interview. But but what's astonishing is that you know they are some way from profit, some way from meaningful revenue as well. And it kind of brings it back home that this is a pre-revenue startup, right? Despite if, the eye-watering valuation. If they keep it to ten billion, I'll be shocked. You you know because that's the kind of number that you overrun. I mean, it takes a billion dollars to develop a car from scratch. And that's right. If you're already GM or Ford, right? That's if you already know exactly what you're doing, have your factories built, et cetera, et cetera. Let me ask you about um, Rivian, because this is the other sure. kind of viable um, competitor to Tesla. Lucid and Rivian, really the only two that are likely to bring out a car in the next 12 months for sale. And uh, you and Katie Roof and... A guy with a really cool name, Keel Porter, uh, yes, broke Keel. a story about their I, IPO. Keel Porter is such a cool name. It sounds like he should be in a movie with Tom Keene. You know, he's not black that and cool, white. but yeah, I'll give him that. Yeah. <laughs> in any in any case, their IPO could come as soon as September. It's not a SPAC. It's a legit IPO. 
Tell us about it. Yes, for, according to sources, that's what we're hearing, that, that Rivian is, is looking at an IPO. It's speaking to bankers. They hired a new CFO um, who's a former JP Morgan executive in the new year. Um, don't forget, Rivian has raised $8 billion to date from private rounds, right, with some very big-name investors. A lot more than Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, a lot more. And they have been in stealth mode in the truest sense of the expression. You know, they really spent several years under the radar before going public with their design even. What I'm hearing in Rivian is it's a really similar story. Lots of prudence and patience. They have a very big workforce of around 3,500. They have retrofitted a Mitsubishi uh, factory in normal Illinois rather than build a factory from scratch like Lucid's done. They have a lot of and I cannot stress this enough, a lot of former Tesla engineers at the very senior level for engineering and manufacturing. And on paper, they will be the first to bring a new EV product to market here in the US, a battery electric pickup in June. And I think you and I have talked about this, Matt, but Americans buy light trucks. They don't buy sedans. They don't (laughs) buy hatchbacks. People, when I talk to people about hatchbacks here, they don't even know what that is. So, (laughs) you know, the anticipation... Right, exactly. The anticipation... The British it's very top gear. Yeah. And, and the anticipation with Rivian is like, well, here we go, a battery electric car that is actually in line with what Americans like to drive. Right. And that's and part of the excitement. That, and hey. one, Ed, that drove on the long way up with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Correct. Borman. Uh, you actually saw that Rivian truck in action. So that's a great advertisement. Yeah, Advertisement, correct. as you would say. <laughs> Advertisement. Hey, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Ed Ludlow, reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from San Francisco. Some red headlines coming across, Matt. U.S. ready sanctions to punish Russia over Navalny. So it's uh, very interesting in there. So we'll have to follow up with that story uh, going forward. One of the, I thought, the most interesting stories on the Bloomberg um, so far this week has been one about how Joe Biden will spend more money after this $1.9 trillion stimulus package on infrastructure. And we're going to bring in Josh Dietz to talk a little bit about that. He's a senior portfolio manager at Aberdeen Standard Investments. Typically, when I talk to somebody, Josh, at Aberdeen, um, they're in Edinburgh. But... (laughs) You are uh, in New York City, um, which is a place that probably needs a heck of a lot more spending than Edinburgh. Where do you think project? Where do you where do you think Biden? I guess Biden famously doesn't like LaGuardia, right? (laughs) Well, who does? Where do you think Biden's going to start? So I think it's a combination, right? When people talk about infrastructure, historically, it's always been roads and bridges. But we actually think that's part of an infrastructure plan. But it's also about modernizing the economy, tackling climate change, and addressing racial and social uh, economic inequalities. And part of broadband, 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 right? Exactly. As we're all working from home and our kids are in Zoom school from home, it shows what an essential asset that broadband is currently. So I think it's going to be a combination of all of those. It's just not going to be fixing the Guardia Airport or the airports in general, but that will be part of it. All right, we we have a little tunnel connecting uh, New Jersey and New York that goes under the Hudson River. We need to to fix that, uh, Josh, so see what you can do there. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, again, this uh, this infrastructure bill. It seems like there's a little fatigue here on the, uh, you know, getting more money from Congress in terms of fiscal stimulus. Is there bipartisan support for uh, kind of a more of an infrastructure type play, Josh? Both Democrats and Republicans have talked about it for years. Probably the only issue they agree on 
And I would actually say what we've seen now in this $1.9 billion quote stimulus package, to me, it's more of a stabilization package. The infrastructure plan would actually be a stimulus for the economy because there's a multiplier effect and we'll have growth from that rather than just stabilizing the economy. And that's why I think it's so important. He did meet with the Republicans a couple of weeks ago to discuss it. And I think this is, was part of his campaign pledge. And I think he really wants to get this done sooner than later. So we could have possibly have it by the summer or possibly the fourth quarter. Don't forget the other thing they agree on. Uh, AOC and Ted Cruz both thought it <laughs> was stupid for Robin Hood to shut down GameStop buyers. Um, in terms of the money, I mean, two to three trillion is what you expect, right? So if you add that to the one point nine trillion support uh, program and the other four and a half trillion we've spent, you're already getting towards $10 trillion of spending in like a four or five year period. Um, that's got to be some kind of record. It, it is. It's tremendous how much our debt has grown and it is worrisome. I will say the one part about an infrastructure package, it can and should lead to growth. And it wouldn't be all up front like these other packages. This would be spent over an eight or 10 year period. So hopefully we'll have growth and that will help the economy and hopefully pay down some of the debt we've accumulated over the past few months. All right, Josh, given uh, the potential for uh, more fiscal stimulus, again, on the infrastructure side, how are you positioning your portfolio? So it's a combination. First of all, we view this as a free call option. So we posi- we're positioning our portfolio currently for what we see the expected spending, not from the government, from the private side. And a lot has to do with climate change, and we see growth there. You know, we expect 10 to 12 percent or I should say low double digit growth in renewables over the next decade um, to come. Right now, about three quarters of the world, judged by GDP, has committed to net zero emissions. So we think renewables are a clear way to play the infrastructure and the growth. And another part of it is um, preparing for 5G. And we believe that macro towers are the most cost-effective way to deploy wireless spectrum. So I would say in the renewable side, we like quite a bit, and then from the 5G and the towers. And just one other part, as the economies reopen, and we started to see that with Israel right now, and their economy starting to reopen, being they've been able to distribute the vaccines, we do think there's also an opportunity in transportation right now. As we saw airline stocks move over the past couple of days, we think airports and roads are also a good place to invest for infrastructure. So if I translate a little bit, and this doesn't have to be the exact pick, but so you like Siemens and and GE, you like Ericsson and Nokia, you like- um, American Tower, Crown Castle. What about Caterpillar? What about- What about, what about, you know, uh, the the big industrial earth-moving equipment maker? I mean, isn't that the kind of typical infrastructure winner? So it's interesting because that's the way people look at it. And those companies, the Cats and Deers, they might be great companies, but they're much more cyclical, right? And that's really betting on some type of stimulus package. What I'm talking about are really we want to own the owners of infrastructure who are going to grow as the economy comes back and also have the ability to grow from um, countries pledged for zero-cost emissions going forward. So that's what we're we really want to play. We want to own the owners of infrastructure rather than the construction companies or rather than the suppliers to that. 
So it's a little bit different than what people yep. would generally say this is a type of infrastructure play. So we wouldn't have the Ericsson and Nokias in, the, in right. our fund, but we much more prefer the wireless towers. All right, Josh. Hey, Josh, we're going to have to leave it there here just because of time, but uh, I'm definitely down with that tower call. Josh Dietz, Portfolio Manager of the Aberdeen Standard Global Infrastructure Income Fund. We appreciate it. But what we've heard so far from Chairman Powell uh, is probably what most market participants were expecting to hear. That is generally uh, lower for longer as it relates to rates and status quo as it relates to asset purchases in the market. Let's see how that translates in for a professional investor. We do that with David Hardin, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Summit Global Investments. They have $1.2 billion in assets under management. We appreciate him taking the time. David, so again, it kind of seems uh, steady as she goes from the Fed. Is that consistent with what you're looking for and how you've structured your portfolio? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Paul, Matt, thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. I think from an investor standpoint, prudently and properly ahead, and that's where the Fed seems to be steadily going forward. Lower, longer. They had, they said they have the tools, that it's not going to turn on the dime. Is there inflation out there? Well, all of us are saying yes, but obviously the Fed is saying no. So, well, Does that mean, you know, it looks like the market is worried that inflation's coming back and that's going to push the Fed to raise rates. And so the market's raising rates itself and that's pushing down stock prices. Does this give you maybe an entry point? Is that a buying opportunity, this dip? especially if you're a trader or investor, either one, absolutely. Because right now, let's face it, we know this this $1 trillion plus dollar package is coming as well, and about 70% of that is going to come right into savings in the market. So another 400 to $500 billion is going to be co- coming into the market. You want to be in front of that. All right, David, I know that you guys at Summit uh, really utilize ESG, environmental, social, and governance. It's a big part of your analytical framework. Tell us kind of what your ESG analysis is, is kind of suggesting to you right now. Well, one of the things that we've noticed clearly is that companies that have good environment, environmental, social governance standards and abide by those standards have lower volatility, have smoother paths, and companies that violate those standards have much more volatility and downside risk. And so we want to avoid these companies that, you know, that are not very high quality, that have a lot of potential for unwanted surprises through ASG. And that's our focus. Obviously, with the size of about $2 billion, we're not going to go out and make the huge change that everybody would, would desire in the world. But we feel like we have really a, a great method to avoid the violators. And that's the key. You you point out that risk has been risk management has been thrown to the wayside and with you know the the four and a half trillion in stimulus that we've had another two trillion at least to come you can understand why um, it kind of reminds me John Authors ha- said uh, timing a market bubble is tough but when you're in one what do you do how do you deal with that pressure you know it's very true let's face it the flash mob of retail investors has no idea and does not care about risk. And there is little risk management going on today. But I think that what you're looking for is, regardless if we have a correction you know, in, in, in eight months or the Fed makes a communication mistake, which it did not this morning, you know, or this reflation trade continues and, and then falls off, liquidity wins, growth, momentum. The point here is that you want to be in companies that will do well in all of these trades. 
you know, companies like Best Buy or companies that, you know, that we own Best Buy it, the, up 20, 200% in its online growth, executing really well. It, it, it's value. It's not really expensive. So it plays well in the value. It plays well in the growth. It has liquidity. So, this, you know, you want to be in these companies. Do you own Home well Depot? That's a tough one today. It, it, well, yeah, <laughs> it, it sure was. Um, and, and we do own a little bit of Home Depot. But, you know, that's sort of the, that, I think that's what you want to be into is companies that do well regardless of the trade. All right. So, Dave, I mean, a lot of folks kind of see this big, big move in the market, you know, off the bottom over the last 12 months and say, OK, that's due in large part to the Fed flooding the market, which we got more confirmation today. It's due to fiscal stimulus. And now it's due to, thank goodness, the vaccines coming into the market, you know, kind of bringing the reopening trade back to the fore. Is there a valuation concern here, David? How do you think about valuation in this market? Well, yes, there is valuation concern, but the risk-seeking behavior is going to continue. And if you look back at all these other corrections, valuation wasn't the thing that sparked the big downdraft, right? So valuation does not seem to create a market correction in and of itself. And so I don't think in this time period, right at the moment, you need to be so focused, laser-focused on valuation. Take, for example, Apple, which we own. Apple right now is trading about 30 times multiple, right? But its five-year average multiple is only 17. So someone would say, gosh, this is really expensive. But look at their innovation. Look at their growth. Mm. They just had a 100-plus quarter like Amazon. So I think there's a lot of innovation there. People are looking them for their next dance. They've done great on ESG as well. So from our standpoint, I think you need to let the evaluation maybe hold us, you know, not make as much weight in your decision as it would in a normal trade. If they can make an EV, they could shoot for a thousand valuation, right? I mean, 30. That's a, that's peanuts. If they could make a thousand dollar phone that doesn't break when you drop it, that would also be uh, another reason to, to boost the valuation. Dave, it's been a pleasure having you on the program today. Uh, great talking to Dave Harden. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Summit Global Investments. They manage a couple billion dollars there. Said they're not going to change the world, but he definitely uh, loves what he does and his employees. So I think that's pretty good. A pretty located, good uh, seat located in Bountiful, Salt Lake City. Utah. Yeah, it's actually ver- Bountiful, Utah. Check out the website. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Very cool. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.